Hi everyone, and welcome to Ion Markets Quick Takes. I'm Ali Curry, and every week, along with my guests, Amir Kwaja and Chris Barnes, we'll take a quick dive into the headlines on the Claris blog. Let's get started. Hi Amir, hi Chris. Hi Ali. Hi Ali, how you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to have you here. Welcome to Quick Takes. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Amir, let's start with you. What are your quick takes for this week? Which headline from the Claris blog would you like to discuss? I wrote a blog on CPMI IOSCO disclosures. Yeah, So these are quarterly disclosures made by all clearinghouses that give an insight into their margins, their default resources, credit risk, collateral, liquidity. And this data we've collected since 2015. So we have over seven years worth of quarterly data, over 200 fields. It really allows to compare what is changing over time in these sort of metrics in margin, default resources, credit risk, um, payment obligations. Between CCPs, we can compare them and across time, right? So it really helps clearing members, regulators understand the risk policies, the risk governance, the kind of important metrics for clearinghouses, which are, you know, very important financial institutions. And what is the title of your blog? Yeah, so it's called What's New in CCP Disclosures, Second Quarter 2023. So each quarter, I write a blog where I cover kind of the new numbers, you know, what's changed since the prior quarter or the prior period. I see. All right, sounds good. Have at it. Great. Yeah. So, so I think quite typically I start with looking at initial margin, you know, which is a, a very important metric at clearing, uh, at clearing houses and CCPs. As we all know, CCPs are there to mutualize risk across clearing members. So to do that, they first have to collect risk appropriate or margin appropriate to the amount of risk contributed by each clearing member. And that's called initial margin. So it really depends on how much risk a member has at that clearinghouse and also how volatile the market is on, on that on that risk type. So these are pretty large numbers. So just very briefly, you know, we collect the four largest interest rate swap CCPs, and they have a combined aggregate initial margin of $317 billion at the end of uh, second quarter 2023. We've collected nine uh, futures and options CCPs, and they have $450 billion initial margin, and three credit-drifted CCPs that have 70 billion initial margin. So you can see across those, those are substantial financial numbers, right? 450, 317, 70, so that's, you know, 800 billion, right, of resources held by those clearinghouses to mutualize or to, to cover the exposures of their members. Having uh, read your blog, and obviously initial margin numbers very, very big, right? I thought, one of the things that jumped out when you look at the initial margin for interest rate swaps is you've obviously got swap clear and CME and Eurex and, and, and JSCC. I was really interested to note that the initial margin for Eurex is as high as it is. I think um, Eurex in, in, in the disclosures is at about 50 billion. That's correct. And we've done some recent work on market share, right? Where Eurex, in terms of a, a turnover perspective, sits uh, in, anywhere between like six and nine percent of the euro market alone. Um, and yet, it appears to carry quite a high amount of initial margin. That's probably also the case when you compare it to JSCC, right? Which is, on the face of it, somewhat similar in that it's a local clearinghouse that just clears yen. Yeah, good point, Chris. Yes, I would say, you know, so there are a number of factors that contribute to the size of initial margin, right? So first is, you know, how directional or balanced the risk is at the clearinghouse. So if we're looking just if we're comparing gross notional, which is just a gross measure, you know, 
we don't know how much net risk is there. So with initial margin, we're looking at net sort of net risk. So again, they, so they, there can be differences in size of position and how balanced they are. So the more directional, the higher the initial margin. So one factor is the actual swaps and position of the clearinghouse. The other factor is really the initial margin model, how it's calibrated. Different TCPs have a different methodology. Some would like, you know, have a higher initial margin. Some may have a lower relative initial margin and higher default resources. Is that calibration? And 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 quite quite typically, IM is calibrated due to historical data. And there can be different stress periods involved, right? So depending on, it's a choice of calibration or resources. You know, VM, IM, default sources to be adequate, right? So so there's, there's a choice that CCPs make there. And I guess the third thing is just the volatility of the underlying markets, right? So, so you know, GSEC and yen, so clearly, you know, we know yen interest rates are not very volatile. They've been very low for years. So pretty flat for years. So, you know, so they would you would collect less margin to cover any potential loss in yen than euros, yeah, or dollars, yeah. So I'd say those are kind of three sort of reasons. And does, um, and does anything else jump out, out outside of the interest rate swaps for you, either on CDS index or? Yeah. So the other thing that jumps out is, you know, we normally, because there's so many fields that are changing, we have in our, you know, we have a way to, based on tolerance, check which numbers have moved the most out of, you know, past few quarters out of tolerance, right? So that allows you to easily highlight things that have changed a lot. Is, is, is this our color-coded view we have? Yes. Where it's shaded yeah, so, like red and orange in, in, in the actual app. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So basically, so in the Clara CCP view app, we have a way to highlight metrics that have changed out of temps and tolerance in the last few years very quickly. Because there's so many numbers, you want to know what's changed and what should I f- focus on. So the ones I would quickly highlight very briefly is Eurex um, again clearing again have increased their default resources committed from members from nine billion euros to sixteen billion euros. Right. So again, quite a large change in what members need to contribute to mutualize losses of other members. That's kind of important. Member that's quite big. And I and I'm guessing we haven't seen that type of change before. That's uh, that's that's why it's flagged. Yeah, so that's quite a large change. Yeah, so I think it's largest we've seen in in the historical record. So um, you know, so obviously they've looked at their tail loss credit stress testing and decided that that's a more appropriate number. The other one they pick up is uh, Nasdaq clearing, right? So Nasdaq clearing, both in financial markets with um, and in commodities, had very large maximum IM calls on a single day in the period, right? So on the commodity side, there was a, on a single day there was a four point nine billion aggregate IM call from members. Under, on, in commodities, similarly large number on financial markets, right? So again, that means on a single day across all their members, they had to ask, ask for that amount, right? So again, quite large numbers. Yeah, and, and, and that's VM, so that's purely driven by underlying market volatility as opposed to any changes at the CCP or anything. Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think, and and there's various you know, stress testing measures. So, as well as real actual events in the disclosures, you have estimated events so to show people are doing very prudent risk management, right? So, for example, CME and their estimated stress losses. So they would estimate what could happen if two of their of their largest members defaulted. Would they would they be covered, right? And there was uh, one exception in the quarter there, right, which hasn't happened since. Q4 2018, right? Yeah. But again, those are estimated stress testing losses versus real losses, right? And all these kind of metrics ensure that clearinghouses are adequately risk governing the exposures of their members, right? Both for single members and across the board. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, one, two, one, thing, one thing I find with the disclosures is just the sheer number of them. And I must admit that when I read your blog, Amir, I was reading it going, how has he come up with this list? Has he gone through every <laughs> single disclosure looking, looking at it? And now I see that it's... Uh, Tools help, yes. There's a color-coded grid. Otherwise, you, you could spend you know, days looking at it, right? Days. Or hours. And just get lost in it, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for, for that reason, and, and again, you know, we have a, a really broad spectrum. So it covers, you know, South America with, with kind of B3 Brazil, which is, you know, the biggest clearinghouse in South America, Asia Pac in India, you know, we have CCIL in India. So again, it's a pretty broad spectrum of 44 different clearinghouses. Each clearinghouse has can have many clearing services, right? For Forex or interest rates, for fixed income, right? So there are a lot of clearing services and lots of numbers being published. But it's important, you know, for a member that's a member of that clearinghouse to understand, you know, the risk governance of the, of, of the clearinghouse, right? So quite typically, clearing members are interested in this data as the regulators that actually actually regulate the clearinghouses to make sure they're ad- adequately, you know, risk managed and competitors and other, other clearing members, to, you know, just a comparison, you can compare between clearinghouses and over time what's changing because obviously we, we don't see, you know, as we've had a clearing mandated and becoming larger and larger, there are more financial resources tied up in clearinghouses, right? And large amounts of money move back and forwards every single day. So each day, Billions of dollars are moving back and forward between members and clearinghouses, right? That's a very, very important sort of market, market infrastructure plumbing has to, has to operate. And this sort of transparency really helps give confidence, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think I thought it was interesting this week. I'm not sure if you saw, but the but the Financial Times quoted some Claris data for a uh, piece they've uh, written on Europe. And there was a comment on the uh, FT website, you know, which said measuring the the uh, exposure of euro in <laughs> interest rate swaps in in terms of gross notional is a completely irrelevant measure, you know. And it was really nice from a Claris perspective to be able to respond to uh, the comment, you know, and go, well, this uh, piece of Claris data shows that initial margin over everything is 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 X, and and this amount lives at European CCPs and this lives at third country. Interesting. Interesting. It's uh, certainly a piece of data whilst whilst the disclosures are kind of are backward looking, right? They're uh, uh, delayed now by, 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 by three months, months or six months. Two months delayed, yeah. Delayed by two months. It's still very, very relevant for what is happening in, in, in markets at the moment, right? Every quarter with a two-month lag, we click 200 numbers for every clearing service in every clearing house, right? And we can look at trends over time and comparison between clearing houses. That really provides transparency that they're adequately risk managed, yeah, to members, to clients, to regulators, right? I think that's important data. So I think uh, Ali, so so that's, so that's what I covered, and this is a blog I do on a on a quarterly basis, you know, to show what's changed, um, yeah, with the data, with the data we collect. Great, thank you for sharing, Chris. Over to you. What are your quick takes for this week? Which headline from the Claris blog would you like to discuss? Thank you, Ali. So this week, I'll be talking about one of the most popular subjects on the Claris blog, which is risk-free rates. The type of blog that we normally have particular success with is a market share blog. And recently, we've seen the advent over in uh, Japan of new futures being launched. These new futures are a direct consequence of the transition away from LIBOR. Japan, before LIBOR disappeared, always had a a multiple rate uh, market. So we had LIBOR, we had TIBOR, and we had TONAR. TONAR was recognized as the risk-free rate. Uh, When LIBOR ceased 
publication. There was certainly a feeling in the market that we might get a portion of the market that would transition to Tybor, who were interested in, in term rates. When we first started looking at the data post LIBOR cessation, we certainly saw between 5, 6, 7% of the market each month trading versus Tybor. Uh, but recently, we've actually had an announcement that Tybor will also cease. So Japan is moving to a, a single rate market. So everything will trade versus Tonar. Now, back many, many, many years ago, when when I used to trade the yen market, Tybor futures were always quite confusing for me because uh, there were at least four exchanges who listed different forms of Tybor or LIBOR futures, and there was always a, a competition amongst them. So it's very, very interesting to see both how large the Tybor market used to be how small it is now. I think I wrote in the blog that after either the March or June IMI roll of, of this year, we have virtually zero open interest in, in Tybor futures now. And what that means for Tonar futures going forward, we've seen competing contracts launched by both JPX and TFX. Contract specs themselves are identical, three-month contracts out of the IMI role. And so it, it really is like a, a direct head-on competition between those two. I think we've seen that story play out previously in Sonya markets. Admittedly, we still had short, short sterling listed as the LIBOR contract at the time. As that competitive landscape evolved, we've uh, pretty much seen all of the Sonya volume stay at ice. It's going to be really interesting from a from a market's perspective to monitor how the market share evolves in yen as well. Chris, I want to ask you about that. So at the moment, you know, in your blog, you had uh, JPX at 75% and TFX at 25%, right? You know, for the same economically, you know, same economic contract. So do you think all liquidity will go to one? And are there examples of futures contracts that are listed that are economically equivalent where it's not 100% at one exchange in a currency. It's difficult to know where it will end up. There is definitely a tendency for a single pool of liquidity to uh, develop in one contract. I think as we as we sit here now and, and look at it, right, we're in very, very early stages for this. We're actually in such early stages that I should highlight to listeners that this uh, does happen, but it happens rarely, thankfully. On the first version of the blog published, there was actually a mistake on the data, you know, and, and this is another reason why, A, we're very, very thankful for all of our readers who read, but also our readers who uh, reach who reach out to us and say, thank you for flagging it, but hold on, there uh, was a mistake. Which we corrected once we alerted. Exactly. There's been a huge decline in the volume of short-term interest rate yen futures over the last five, six years. And even now, the tuna contracts are pretty low. Right. That's right. Compared to other currencies, you know, so uh, we've seen in the US, you know, SOFA has pretty much taken over from your dollar in terms of volume, right? So it's very quickly comparable size, right? Yeah. In, in, in the US, it's, it's quite amazing, I find. Yeah. The euro dollar future, at one point, the world's biggest futures contract, right? It's absolutely massive. And yet, and, and yet, SOFA futures have really come in and slotted in and are now just as big as euro dollars used to be. 
And Sonia features again, you know, I think are, are pretty sizable. Are sizable. I don't think they've quite reached the same size as uh, short hair sterling. So it's difficult to unpick the impacts of the rates environment, the impact of less hedging risk associated with, with swaps fixings. So I, I, I think looking at, at Japan as kind of a standalone market will shed a little bit of light on just how successful the SOFA contract has been. But also looking forward, you know, Tybor's gone now, basically. Uh, there's, a, yeah. uh, there's a consultation on, on the cessation of it. It does raise a natural question, how long has Euribor in Europe got left? Yes. And what does that mean for Esther Futures? I wrote a very similar blog to to this on Esther Futures over the summer. We've uh, seen uh, the likes of CME, Eurex, and and ICE launch Esther Futures, but they're still very, very, very small. Clearly, in their infancy compared to uh, Euribor, and so I think looking at what happens in in Japan and the tone of futures can also be instructive over what we might expect to see for Esta. Because I, th- I think in Japan now, we have two exchanges that are listing contracts. So, th- so the market is able to trade these. As liquidity builds, we'll see how large they become, right? So members have a tool they can use for you know for hedging or speculation yeah. on, on rates. And I think as clearly as Japan changes some of its quantitative easing policy, you know, we're starting to see sounds about their targets you know, yeah. and their interest rates. So th- there may be much more demand for that contract. Agreed, agreed. And I think fundamentally, whether tonar contracts can attract the same size as Tybor reached as well, or, or whether because we're in a fundamentally simpler world with a, with a single index now, whether, whether the natural end state for these contracts is smaller than, than Tybor reached. Yeah. Just for reference, what is the title of this blog post? This is Yen Tonar Futures, a rising star in the RFR market. Now, I have to admit that I didn't write the title. Amir and I have been practicing with our chat GPT and Google have recently made Bard available as well. And so I wrote in Bard, I said, you know, Bard, what would Chris Barnes at Claris write about Yen Tonar Futures? You know, and <laughs> first things first, I should say that Bard didn't make the mistakes that we made in it, but it also failed to create anything new, right? It sounded very kind of chatty. It, it sounded yeah. like something I would write, but the content was not something that, that uh, we would credibly publish. There was no data. There was nothing new. Yes. There were no contract details. It felt like a, a Claris person speaking and saying nothing, basically. But what it was really helpful for was a title and also a blog structure because you know it forms it with with uh, four sections. And so a lot of the point of, of writing a blog is to get people to read it. A lot of the traffic onto the blog naturally come from a Google search. And so I figured, well, if Bard is creating this structure and likes this headline, we should try it for a blog. You know, and, and, and that is one of the really kind of rewarding things of publishing a blog frequently is that it gives us a platform to try these new tools, you know, and, and see if it works. Interesting. Interesting, Chris. Yes. I must try that on my next one. Yeah. <laughs> title and structure. We can certainly improve the titles from my what's new this quarter type of title. <laughs> Ali, the, the, there is also internal competition between uh, Amir and I over a uh, n- number of views per, per like month and week and, and year as well. So, you know, 
Chris and I are now tied neck and neck with each have written 443 blogs in the last nine, 10 years. What is it? Yeah, I don't know. Since 2013. Yeah. So 10 years. 443, 443 each. We have to just keep on, keep on the same, you know. Can't, can't, let, can't let Chris come beyond me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, for, not for long. <laughs> well, the upside, there's a lot of content for our listeners to go explore. And on that note, Amir and Chris, thank you for sharing your quick takes. Let's do it again next week. Thanks, Ali. Thank you. And that's our episode for today. You can read more about these topics on the Clara's blog, and you can follow Ion Markets on X and LinkedIn. Until next week, thanks for joining us.